This morning I want to go back to our foundation of Calvinism, but I want to do it in a little bit different form. This morning we're going to put it in the form of a tree. And we're going to put the S down here at the bottom. Really, maybe the SOV, just to remind us that an excessive emphasis on God's sovereignty uh, is the soil in which this tree or this tulip grows. The trunk of the tree is total inherited depravity. And then, of course, there are all kinds of branches that go out from that. And that, of course, is the section where uh, we find uh, unconditional election. That's the place also where we find limited atonement, one of the branches. And uh, we find uh, perseverance of the saints here, too, as one of the branches. Now, when you have a tree, there are two ways to kill it. Do you see my point? How can you kill that tree? That's right. You can, you can get down here at the roots. Or you can take it apart a branch at a time and even then cut the uh, trunk down. But still, you're going to have to do something to the roots, probably, lest it come back. But you can get it piece by piece and then eventually, of course, get the roots out. But you can just attack the roots. Well, that's what we uh, can do also in destroying the tree of Calvinism or the tulip. We can, we can talk about each one of the major tenets of the system. They are, of course, very much integrated, very much related to each other. And in reality, as we're going to see this morning, if you take care of this one, that is, if you show that this one is untrue, this doctrine, then all of these others really wither. They, uh, they draw their nourishment, their vitality, from that one. If there is no such notion in the Bible as total inherited depravity, uh, you don't need to go any farther. Now, what I mean is, if you believe this system, you don't need to go any farther because this is the one that gives life to all of these others. It's the one nearest to the root, of course, but it's also the one on which all of these others depend and by which they all are sustained. Uh, look in your material right now over on page 2. Since we're talking about this, this will be a good time to emphasize it. Point F. And by the way, that B right at the top of the page, evidently this is where I combined some sections from some other material I had and didn't notice the B. And that needs to be changed to an E. And then the F, just under that, false doctrines resulting from it. Every one of these false doctrines originates as a result of this one right here. Total inherited depravity. Because of it, Calvin believed that 
God had done some predestining. We talked about predestining the very first day. Because of total inherited depravity, not only did God uh, choose and predestine the ones that could be saved and apply that justification to the individuals whom he elected, but he also uh, decided to impute sin and to impute righteousness. Now we're going to talk about that imputation a little bit later on, and I think I think that will come tomorrow. But uh, let me tell you right now, as far as imputation is concerned, it just means uh, to assign to another person what belongs to one. To take what belongs to one and assign it to that, to put it down to that person's account. Now, there is some imputing that the Bible talks about, believe it or not, in Romans 4, and maybe a passage or two elsewhere in the New Testament. Just as we said the other day, there's some electing that the Bible talks about. Some foreordaining or predestining that the Bible talks about. The Bible is not silent concerning those. But it does not teach the kind of predestining, the kind of electing, or the kind of imputing that Calvinism alleges takes place. Calvinism says, first of all, that Adam's sin was imputed to all humanity after him. The imputation of Adam's sin. Even though the rest of humanity down the line would not be guilty of Adam's sin, it was imputed to them. It was put down against them. And, of course, that makes necessary some of these other doctrines, like we're talking about. If the rest of humanity were not affected by Adam's sin, there'd be no need for God to uh, pick out which ones could be saved because uh, they'd all have the free will to uh, exercise faith, obedient faith, trusting faith in Jesus Christ. But Calvinism says they're not able to do that because this sin of Adam has been imputed to them. So that's the first imputation. But then, uh, as you go on down the line, there's some other imputations that Calvinism talks about. Another imputation that Calvinism alleges to take place is the imputation of the perfect righteousness of Jesus to the saved, to the elect. Um, I might even have these three somewhere in these notes, but uh, it'll come to me. I'll, I'll get it to you at least by tomorrow. <laughs> uh, sorry about that, but sometimes I guess we all have those moments. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, and you know, even even some brethren started uh, buying into that idea of the imputation of Jesus' personal righteousness, or perfect righteousness, uh, several years ago. Uh, now, there's no denying the fact, the Bible teaches, in fact, that, uh, that righteousness, uh, righteousness is granted, righteousness is given. It's, it's not deserved, it's not earned or merited. But the kind of righteousness that's granted or given is justification. 
That's all the word righteousness in those passages means. It just means justification. So what does God do when he grants us justification through Christ, through his blood and so forth, on the basis of our obedient faith? Well, he, he grants us the forgiveness, the status of forgiven people. He declares us uh, free from guilt as if we never had sinned. But that doesn't mean that he takes the personal righteousness of Jesus over here and moves it over and applies it to Bobby and to Dennis and to Bob and to Dan. Uh, the Bible nowhere teaches that. Uh, the Bible does teach that justification, righteousness in that sense, uh, is awarded or is granted, given by the Lord. And we're not especially concerned right now about studying passages along that line, but I mention it because this idea of imputation is the result of this. Uh, did you have something, Bob, I saw? No. Maybe. Okay, you weren't raising your hand. It wasn't. You were not thinking of the, uh, of course, the only one of the Bible that talks about imputing faith and righteousness. I know you were talking about that one that got that lesson and one that got If you said that, I don't remember. Uh, the Bible does say, of course, in the case of Abraham, uh, really in a number of different instances of his life, that his faith was imputed unto him for or unto righteousness. Now, that word unto there, I think, is a, is a tricky word. I say it's tricky. Maybe, maybe I should say the word that men have put in the place of it sometimes. That's the tricky part. Uh, the word unto is pretty straightforward. It means leading to, leading in the direction of. So the faith that Abraham had, and for that matter the faith of any believer, is put down to his account as leading to his justification or his righteousness. Now, the problem you get into is that in some of the newer translations, you have the word as here. What that implies is a swapping, uh, an exchange. And I'm not sure the Bible teaches that. I'm not sure the Bible teaches that uh, your faith is just swapped for your righteousness, your justification. Uh, now, am I making too much out of that? Uh, yeah, that's right. But it's the word unto. And that's why I've been very careful about some of the new translations like in Romans 4. I always point out uh, what the Bible teaches there and what the word really means. Infant baptism is another. You can see why infant baptism arose as a practice. It was because they believed that the children were doomed to damnation. So they have to bring up something, some, invent some practice or doctrine that will take care of them. So infant baptism is the result of total inherited depravity. Miraculous conversion by the Holy Spirit is another. The human being has to be 
somehow jolted from outside himself. Because within himself there is the total inability, remember? Total depravity has as its corollary total inability. So if he's totally unable to respond, God has to do something from the outside to enable him to respond. And that's the miraculous intervention or conversion by the Holy Spirit. And then the Bible is seen as a dead letter by a lot of people. A lot of conservative Protestants really believe that. They believe that the Bible is just a dead letter until the Holy Spirit comes and enlightens you or uh, uh, infuses within you some spark and enables you to understand it. It's sort of like... uh, It's sort of like uh, the idea of inspiration that some people hold. Some people hold, not that the words themselves were inspired by the Spirit, but that the individual, in studying it, in reading it, uh, suddenly is inspired to realize what it's saying. And, uh, of course, that's not what the Bible teaches. But that's why... In some of the mainline Protestant groups or denominations, uh, there can be uh, sort of a, a sort of unity between people who believe uh, in a more conservative way that the Holy Spirit inspires the individual uh, to learn or to know what the Bible means, and even those liberals in those groups who believe that uh, in the in the philosophy of existentialism, the existential philosophy says that when you have that existential moment, that is when it, when it just dawns on you. Now, some of the real liberals among them might say that that's not necessarily divine in origin, but they would say the Bible becomes the Word of God to you at that point. And if you notice carefully. When you read from people like that, or when you hear preachers like that on the radio, they'll say things that will give you a clue as to what their background or fundamental thinking is along that line. I know um, I've heard some Methodist preachers on the radio in recent years. I, I try to listen to them pretty carefully when I'm riding along in the car just to try to find out what's causing the tick. And uh, I don't know for sure. But this man who's up here at First Methodist in Athens now, uh, Jimmy Basham or Basham, I'm not sure how he says that name, uh, he seems to be very conservative. But some before him did not, uh, they didn't use the scriptures nearly as much as he does. Uh, and some of the things they said caused me to believe that uh, they had a very loose view. Now, some of the men associated with Athens College over here in the past, even their religion teachers, had a very loose view of inspiration. Um, But uh, if you'll listen to them, you you can detect the fundamental thinking that they have. But this idea of the miraculous conversion by the Holy Spirit and the Bible being a dead letter until the Holy Spirit... Uh, awakens within you 
a realization of what it means. And then the idea that there's no human responsibility in salvation. It's totally a work of grace. This, this is the result of total inherited depravity. Because the human being is unable to do anything. He couldn't do it if he wanted to. According to Calvinism. The impossibility of apostasy. After all, if, uh, if God is going to save you, well, he's going to do his work well. And once he saves you, he saves you forever. Regardless of maybe what your inclinations might be or your tendencies might be. And that's why sometimes the doctrine has been described like this. Uh, concerning salvation or justification, uh, if you want it, you can't get it. Think about that. Even if you want it, you can't get it. That is, if you're not one of the elect. If you want it, you can't get it. If you get it, you can't lose it. Because there again, you're one of the elect. If you lose it, you never had it. If you want it, you can't get it. If you get it, you can't lose it. And if you lose it, you never had it. (laughs) There are a lot of assumptions involved, of course, in all of those three statements there. All right, go ahead. Mm-hmm. What seems to mean here that they have miscompleted is the process of conversion. Mm-hmm. It's the process of having the Word of God in the heart. And I mean that as far as when you read it and you see what it says and you compare yourself to what it says, there has to have, there has to something that has to happen. But there's, that is not perfect. And they, they took they, they took the person right out of there, almost. They don't have to have that. There's no, there's no need for sorrow for sin. That's not no need, need for what? For sorrow for sin. Oh, sorrow. Like I don't know where that thing. Mm-hmm. I'm, trying to, I'm trying to see. Uh, well, what they would do is make that a product of the Holy Spirit's work in you. See, when the Holy Spirit comes in and he enlightens you, he quickens you, he wakes you up spiritually. He then enables you to believe and to repent. But you're saved already. So salvation is not... You're saved because of God's decree. You know, God's eternal decree, way back there before the foundation of the world. And uh, as, far as, as far as you're concerned, uh, your believing has nothing to do with your salvation in strict Calvinism, your repenting has nothing to do. That is, God unconditionally decreed your justification without even a view to any works that you might engage in that would contribute to that salvation. So faith and repentance have nothing to do with it. Those are just the product of it. The result. But um, my understanding is that Calvin does not actually equate election with salvation. But rather equate he's making the point that if you are elect, you will be saved. But there will be process that uh, the Spirit will awaken in you and so on you go through the process, you will be saved. So that they do not equate the election itself with salvation. But the idea that if you are elect, that means you are the one one who is chosen to be saved. Therefore, you will be saved, 
that's the irresistible uh, grace mm -hmm. uh, that you will you will be saved. But that's not an understanding about the election that is not necessarily equated with salvation. In the first outline that we used, the first three days, I pointed something out on page, uh, right at the bottom of page two, and talking about the terms used by the Calvinists. <laughs> and we don't get to election until we come to the top of the third page. Uh, election is the act by which God chooses and makes effectual the salvation of an individual according to his predestination. So God did some electing. He did some choosing. And he's going to also do some predestining, like this says, according to his predestination. Now, predestination was at the bottom of the previous page, if you recall. Predestination is foreordained, excuse me, foreordination applied to the salvation of the individual. So, Remember, foreordination is just uh, God's exercise of his will by which he decrees whatever comes to pass, whatever happens. But when, it, when that is applied to the salvation of the individual person, that's predestination. And, of course, predestination is working in conjunction with election, too. But that doesn't actually happen. That is, as far as the individual is concerned, until the Spirit comes. And uh, we might say makes it practical or applies it to each individual elect one. So they use these terms in uh, in uh, their own way, and it's obvious, of course, that they have they have an agenda. They have something that they're trying to uh, prove in that way. Now, these doctrines come about as a result of total inherited depravity. So what we have to do is see how total inherited depravity can be dealt with. Now, I, I, I haven't dealt this morning, and I don't think I really need to very much. In the introduction here of this new information that I gave you today, I talk about the new vocabulary the new way of expressing things with Calvinism. But we've talked about that already, so that's why I'm not really spending much time there. Um, corrupt nature, sinful nature, uh, carnal man can't understand the Bible, that kind of thing. Once saved, always saved. Uh, but let's, let's think now about total inherited depravity at the bottom of page one of today's handout. Total inherited depravity. Now remember that Adam's first sin is the basis of this. It's the foundation of it. There are different theories uh, about uh, how this is transmitted to the individual. Some hold to the idea that it was realistic. That is, it was really transmitted, truly transmitted. There was a man back in the late 60s... Uh, by the name of William, I believe it was William, W.T. Bruner, who uh, had a debate with Brother Clinton Hamilton up in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, on this very matter. Did you go to that debate? Uh, you might remember something about it. Bruner believed that uh, Adam's, Adam's guilt 
was passed along in the germplasm of the cell, of the per- to the cell of the individual. And uh, I understand he labored quite extensively to prove that. Of course, I'm sure Brother Hamilton did a good job, probably a masterful job in dealing with it. But he believed that it is actually or really transmitted physically. That's right. Um, there are others who hold what's called uh, the federal head theory. That is, that Adam was just the representative of the race. He was the federal head of the human race. And uh, as such, uh, what happened to him accrues, of course, uh, I guess we could say is spiritually uh, applicable to all of those whom he represents. Uh, I believe the Bible, of course, does not even teach that. Uh, and then from that, by whatever means they believe that it's being transmitted, they believe that sin is imputed. That sin is actually put down to the account of every human being because of that. Because of Adam, that is. And thus, the human being becomes depraved in all his parts. Body, mind, soul, spirit, totally depraved and thus totally unable. Now, there's a problem with this, of course. The problem is that there's not a passage in the Bible that teaches it. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't some that are used or misused to teach it. And I've cited three of them here for us. These are the ones that in the past have been quite used, quite extensively used. And I want to cite them just very briefly or discuss them very briefly this morning. In David's great prayer of contrition and repentance, the 51st Psalm, he said something in verse 5 that sometimes has been misunderstood. He said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, it might be good to point this out, because we're going to look at another passage in the Psalms in just a minute. Hebrew poetry really has a device in it that is helpful to us in understanding things sometimes. Hebrew poetry doesn't have rhyming words. But it has uh, rhyming thoughts, you might say. It has uh, one line, and then it'll say virtually the same thing sometimes in the second line. It's parallel. Uh, And sometimes, as I said, this is the same. Well, when that's true, this is called synonymous parallelism. There are times, though, when the two lines of a verse have ideas that are opposite to each other. And, of course, that's called something different. That's called antithetical or opposite uh, parallelism. But when it's synonymous or when it's antithetical, one line can often sort of serve to clarify what the other line is saying. And so when you look at a verse like this one, the fifth verse, I was brought forth in iniquity, 
And in sin, my mother conceived me. Those two verses are saying virtually the same thing, just using different words to do it. So, if you're going to be extremely literal about this verse, and remember this is poetry, and I think we sometimes might forget that in our understanding of the book of Psalms, but uh, if you're going to be extremely literal about it, Really, the verse tells us whose sin was involved. Is it David's sin? No. If you're going to, if you're going to press it and make it literal, he says something about his mother, doesn't he? Yeah. Now, I doubt myself that he's even charging her with sin because of the poetic nature of the Psalms. But I say, if you're going to be literal, uh, Really, the sin belongs on the part of the mother instead of on David's part. I think we need to understand that in a book like Psalms, we need to allow it to say what it would normally say in a poetic way. And the fact that it's poetry or figurative does not mean, of course, that it's not true. It just means that a different way of expression is being employed or is being being used. Uh, for example, David said on one occasion in the 119th Psalm, he said, rivers of water run down my eyes because they keep not thy law. Rivers of water, just gushing out. <laughs> well, that's not literal. He didn't mean that literally. fellow couldn't live if, if a river was coming out of his eye. But he means uh, plentiful or abundant sorrow over what he observed when people don't observe or don't keep God's law. And it's a figurative way of expressing a truth. And when you stop and think about it, figurative language really does us a favor. Not only does it paint a picture that literal language cannot paint, but it also says it more concisely, more briefly, than literal words would be able to say. But that doesn't make it untrue. And we have the same thing here. When David says uh, in that fifth verse, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me, all I understand him to mean is that the sphere in which he was born, the world in which he was born, was a world in which sin was ever prevalent, was dominant, was abundant. And I think that's all you can make out of it, really, when you when you approach it. Uh, as a poetic, as a poetic passage, I have heard it explained by some brethren uh, to say that that uh, because of something that the law of Moses had to say about uh, let's see what is it? This is something I ran into just in recent years, and I didn't give it much attention because I didn't really think it's what the passage is talking about. But David's supposed to be the what is it? The seventh generation. Uh, there's something back there in the law about uh, somebody not being able to go to the temple and engage in worship for a certain number of generations after after an ancestor has done something. Do you remember something about that? Bob, I've given my whole life. So from his mother, all from his ancestor Ruth, she and Boaz had Obed, had Obed, Jesse, and David. 
So that makes him, uh, if you count it as the first generation, that makes him the fourth. If you mm-hmm. count uh, Obed as the first, then he'd be the third. Yeah. Who's Obed, Jesse, and David. So, uh, have you ever run into that explanation of this no, passage? In Psalm 58, at verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they're born, speaking lies. Now, look at that passage. There's enough in that passage to provide clues that he's not talking about what a person inherits. Just notice it. What's he say that shows you uh, beyond any doubt, shows you very clearly that he's not talking about something that's inherited. He's talking about what happens after a person enters this world, isn't he? And of course, he, he speaks of it as happening quickly or rapidly. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they're born, speaking lies. Well, does that mean that the one-year-old, I mean the one-day-old child Lies? No. It's hyperbole, as I understand it. He's using uh, obvious exaggeration uh, for the effect. And the point that he's making, or the effect he's trying to establish, is that just too soon, entirely too soon, the people get involved in this thing of sin. But he's not describing literally what happens to a person the minute... He's born into this world. You know, in Ecclesiastes 7, 29, makes the point, Behold, this only could I found that God made man upright. Right. So how many Right. They have to be able to seek it, don't they? And they have to be able to speak it, as this verse says, to speak lies. And that passage you were referring to, Deuteronomy 23, 3, and it just mentioned an Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the ascent of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. Okay. As I said, when I heard that explanation in recent years, I didn't give it much attention because I, I just don't believe that's what the passage is dealing with. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 3. Ephesians 2 verse 3. When Paul was describing the manner of life, the conduct of the Gentiles as well as the Jews... You know, this is one of those passages where he talks about you and we. Evidently meaning you Gentiles who were alienated from God and we Jews as well who were in covenant relationship with God. Well, he says in verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Now, that word nature is the word that usually is flatstone to. Do you know what that word means? Does it mean naturally, yours by inheritance? Is that what he means? Well, the word can mean that, the word fusis, but it doesn't always mean that even in the Bible. Sometimes it means what has come to be so much a part of one's being that it's second nature, what we call second nature to him. And there's some instances of that. 
it would be interesting for you sometime just to make a study of that word. And note the passages. I'm not going to take the time to do it today because we have too much else to do. But just notice the different occurrences of that word. And you'll find some other instances besides this one right here, that is, where the word obviously doesn't mean what is inherited, but what a person acquires uh, through exposure from his environment and just practices and becomes a part of it. He, he, he makes that clear if you'll just stop and think about it, because there in the verse he talks about we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, that is, in our conducting ourselves and in our fulfilling the desires. At that time, we were by nature. We were demonstrating what our nature was. That is, that we were children of wrath. And children of wrath just means, of course, that uh, our behavior fitted us for God's wrath. Now, in fact, in, instead of teaching total inherited depravity, the Bible really teaches the opposite. Uh, that Luke 18, verse 16, let's, let's deal with that one just very quickly. That's the passage, and you remember it, of course. That's the passage where Jesus called them to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. Why? For of such, or some translations say to such, belongs the kingdom of God. Now, a little child was used by Jesus to portray or to picture the kind of innocence, purity, humility, to whom the kingdom belongs. That's the opposite of what total inherited depravity alleges about a child, isn't it? That's the very opposite. Not only that, in Matthew's account, over in Matthew chapter 18, uh, Jesus said at verse 3, Unless you are converted and become as little children, you shall in no wise or by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now he's getting people ready for the kingdom which is coming. And he wants to prepare them so that when it does arrive, they can enter it. They can be a part of it. And he says, you're going to have to become as little children. Well, stop and think. If Calvinism is true, if the little child is totally depraved, what was Jesus encouraging there? He was encouraging us to go in the opposite direction from what the rest of his ministry would encourage, isn't he? If you have to become as the little depraved child, the little child totally depraved, before you can enter the kingdom, uh, that's not the kind of kingdom that he later portrays it as being, is it? Okay. But then, too, there's the point that needs to be understood that from the Bible standpoint, sin is not something you inherit. Sin is something you do. It's something that you practice or something that you fail to do. And the passages here are probably familiar to you. Uh, John talked about sin being lawlessness. 
in 1 John 3, 4, or transgression of the law, some translations render it. Well, there is the, is the person's relationship to divine law. He, he practices that which is not lawful. He practices that which law does not endorse, or commend, or approve. And then, of course, in James 4, verse 17, to him who knows to do good, but does not do it, to him it is sin. So you see, sin is either doing the thing we ought not, or failing to do the thing we ought to do. And you have virtually the same thing, of course, in Romans 14.23, when Paul says that the man who eats, uh, or who doubts, rather, is condemned if he eats, because he eats not of faith. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Um, the faith there is the man's uh, own understanding of what the will of the Lord is. It's, uh, it's, it's the faith in the correctness, or I said his own understanding is the basis of it, but the faith there is the faith that what he's doing is the right thing. Uh, he, he, he believes that he's doing the correct thing. And so, if a person believes that he ought to do something, but he doesn't do it, then he does it without faith. That is, without the approval of his conscience in the correctness of what he's doing. But there again, it still involves, of course, things done or things not done. Furthermore, total inherited depravity... uh, uh, if you're not careful, we'll make God the author of sin. Because the Bible says that God is the father of our spirits. Now, what does the Calvinist allege concerning the spirit? Body, mind, soul, spirit, all depraved. Now, of course, the Calvinist might say, well, God made Adam sin. But in reality, doesn't God make the spirit of every person? Is he not the creator of all? And uh, I, I'm not so sure that the spirit the soul, and the soul are, uh, are transmitted by physical processes of regeneration. That is, when a parent conceives a child... Uh, I think I think God has to do His work there too. Uh, so if God, being the Father of our spirits, doesn't do His work in us as He did it in Adam, then something's wrong. So Calvinism, as I said, if they're not careful, they'll make God to be the author of sin. And furthermore, it makes Jesus to be depraved, although they deny it, of course. They uh, they don't intend to make Jesus depraved, but listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. What do you learn about Jesus in verse 14? His likeness to humanity. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Now note that. He shared in the same. Why? So that through death, it is his death, he might destroy those who had the power of death, that is the devil. That's the only way Jesus could uh, 
die. God doesn't die. And Jesus is God. So in order for him to die for the sins of the world, he had to become a man. All right? He shared in the same, in becoming a man. Not only that, but uh, in verse 17, therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren. Jesus took on the same nature that we have. Now, if we have a sinful nature, a corrupt nature, why does Jesus not have it? See the point? Now, I didn't mention a while ago Immaculate Conception on page 2, the last one of those doctrines resulting from total inherited depravity. But here's a good place to bring it in. The Catholics have a rather nifty way of getting around this result that I just talked about. When you talk to a Catholic and say, well, Jesus would have had the same corrupt nature, the Catholic said, no, no, because we believe in the Immaculate Conception. Well, what that means is that God made an arrangement, God had a plan for exempting Jesus from that corruption, from that inborn sin, as they would call it, or total inherited depravity, as the Protestants would call it. They don't believe that it starts with Mary, either. They go back to Mary's mother. They go back to Mary's parent and says that's where God started. And he arranged it so that Mary was born free from the stain of sin, free from inborn sin. And then she was able to give birth to Jesus, who also, of course, was free from sin. Now, that's a convenient way to teach it when you stop and think about it. But what Bible is there for? (laughs) That's right. It's just like all these false doctrines. They become necessary because the Calvinist believes this one, total inherited depravity. If he didn't believe that, there never would have been uh, infant baptism or any of the others. And it was, okay, but, but if that's the case, then, and that is what we do see, automatically that does make God the author of sin. Mm-hmm. Because if they, they say there's an exclusion for Mary and the, the, the Lord, that means that that is doing the good, there's no God. If he could exempt one but not others, and that also makes him, as the next point says, a respecter of persons. That's right. That's right. I told you uh, one day earlier this week that we're going to take uh, this and apply it, this principle of divine impartiality, uh, probably tomorrow in conclusion. I think that will be a good way to summarize it. I'll take every one of the points of Calvinism and show you just briefly that uh, Romans 2.11, uh, that principle that uh, there's no respect to persons with God, uh, really applies to every one of those doctrines or tenets of Calvinism. But if God exempted some but not others, then he is guilty of favoritism or partiality, isn't he? Uh, Roman numeral two. Unconditional election. 
That is the selection of a fixed number of people and angels to be saved. Now, as I said the other day, some of the people who believe in Calvinism do not emphasize, and you would think from this that they probably don't believe it, although uh, if you really press some of them, they will say, well, yes, that's what I believe. But I really wonder whether some of them believe in reprobation, uh, because that's, that's the other part of it. As we said the other day, uh, Martin Luther did not believe in double election. That is, that God elected some to be saved and others to be lost. He just believed in the first part of that. So if you talk to a Lutheran, you might be mindful of that. They, they don't really believe that God elected some under the status of reprobates. Um, well, you'd wonder about it. But, uh, but here again, this doctrine of unconditional election makes God a respecter of persons. If he elected some, but not others. It was just a matter of God picking them out. Picking, picking the name or the number out of a hat, so to speak. Then, of course, he's showing favoritism. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. It'll have to be brief because my time is nearly up today. In Ephesians 1, at verse 3, Paul talks about God being blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. The blessing, or the ascription of praise unto God in verse 3, uh, is really uh, said to be in accord with, or corresponding to, God's choosing us in verse 4. That's the force of that expression, just as, or according as, some translations have it. So here is one uh, statement of praise unto God because it corresponds to or accords with God's choosing us. But notice what he says here. It says that he chose us in him. Now, if you go down through this passage here in Ephesians 1, every time the apostle goes from one statement of what God has done for us to another statement, like he chose us and then he foreordained us or uh, predestined us in the next verse, uh, or the others down to verse, uh, about verse 13, every time he asserts one of those statements that God has done this for us, he always says, in him, or in Christ, or in the beloved, beloved one. And what he's showing to us is that what God has done in the spiritual realm, the spiritual benefits that this passage talk about, he has done in Christ. He has accomplished in Christ. And he has made known the gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ, to all the world. 
as the Bible would show us elsewhere, of course. So, whatever God did here, he did in Christ and left it to the individual to exercise his own free will, to exercise believing faith, or uh, obedient faith, in order to enter into Christ, to come into union, spiritual union with Christ, and thus enjoy the blessings that this passage is talking about. Now in the fifth verse, he said, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. So the choosing and the predestining go together, but uh, evidently from what he's saying here, the way he words it, the predestining even preceded the choosing because he said having predestined us to adoption as sons. But this faulty idea of predestination and of election uh, is one that, that we need to teach against, of course, by teaching the truth on passages that teach it. For instance, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, we're bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. How? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Those are just the two sides of the same coin, really. The Spirit sanctifies. He sets apart, he consecrates when people believe the truth. And that's the way in which God accomplishes or achieves his choosing. He said, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Not only that, but he also says, to which he calls you. That is, to this salvation. He calls you to this. By our gospel. So there is also the calling. Well, I'm about three minutes past. I need to stop. I haven't really finished here. But uh, maybe tomorrow I can resume about this point and uh, give you an illustration that I think will help in this matter of predestination and the conditions that God has set.